Well, good morning. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What an honor to be here on this Lord's Day, an honor to be here at Taylor's First Baptist Church. And yes, I know how to say it. Every other First Baptist Church is a First Baptist Church of somewhere. This is the somewhere First Baptist Church. <laughs> Not just somewhere, but Taylor's. And it's legit. You got the people buried in the churchyard and everything. Southern Seminary would not exist except for the state of South Carolina, so I come here with a sense of indebtedness, it's a sense of homecoming, and uh, I'm just so thankful for the, the history of, of our school grounded right here in this state, and without the beginnings in South Carolina, uh, we would not have the seminary we now have today, and uh, we, we had a glorious week. Uh, we graduated over 700 students sending them out into the world, into the mission fields, and uh, it's one of the most heart heartwarming, moving experiences. I, I am completing uh, 30 years soon, and uh, that means uh, it's about my 59th graduation. And the one thing I did not know is, uh, is how emotional that would be, just imagining what the Lord's going to do. I have to speak to these students, recognize them. They're, they're never going to be together again until glory. The last verse of the seminary hymn written by Basil Manley, Jr., we meet to part and part to meet when earthly labors are complete, and to join in yet more blessed employ in an eternal world of joy. And so we'll send them out, but we don't make them, you do, that is your families do. Theological education, Christian higher education, is in bad shape in so many places because there's just not adequate support, not adequate love, not adequate commitment, not adequate discipline. I want to tell you, Southern Baptists still have an opportunity. You in South Carolina, you still have a great opportunity, and that is to pour into this next generation because you understand what's right now at stake. If they are not shaped with Christian truth, grounded in God's Word, then uh, we are not going to have the kinds of churches, the kinds of families, the Southern Baptist Convention we're going to need in the future. So I come here with a sense of indebtedness. Taylor's First Baptist Church, you're one of those churches that's a part of the, the, the spinal column of the SBC. The SBC would not be what it is without churches just like this. You think a history of this church and the investment of this church and the faithfulness of this church and... Uh, I, I just am tremendously moved. I want to thank you for your, your support for Southern Baptist work, uh, for the, your support of the cooperative program. And uh, what you do through the cooperative program makes a massive difference right here in South Carolina, and it makes a massive difference across North America. It makes a massive difference across, across the globe. I mean, there, there, are, there is not another denomination, by the way. There isn't another denomination, period, that would have graduated 700 graduates for theological education. And that's one of four commencement we'll, we'll have this year. That single commencement is more than in total any other denomination will graduate. Now, I don't say that for Southern Baptist braggadocia. This is just bragging rights. I mean, God has given us an opportunity. I look in the sanctuary, by the way. God bless you. You want a sign of health? Look at the young people in this room. Look at the families in this room. I'm just thankful for you. I want to thank you for your church's leadership in the Southern Baptist Convention and the South Carolina Convention. I want to thank you for your pastor. 
And uh, Josh Powell, by the way, you're now sharing him with Southern Seminary in a way you might not know. Just a matter of days ago, he was elected chairman of the Board of Trustees of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I want to thank you for him. Thank you for uh, commissioning him for that task. And uh, the Lord's raised him up, and I'm very, very thankful. Ellis Fuller, South Carolinian, was president of Southern Seminary back in the turn of the last century, and uh, he had been a pastor in Florence, and uh, then became pastor of the First Baptist Church of Atlanta, then came to Southern Seminary as president, and uh, he's from the Low Country. And we just recently came across some recordings of Ellis Fuller that we didn't know existed. I'd never heard his voice before. <laughs> Let me tell you, that's South Carolina. He didn't say church, he said church. Church, we're here to serve the church. At, uh, you have channeled faithfulness into Southern Seminary for so long, and Southern Baptists, they're missionaries uh, from South Carolina serving all over the world. You make that possible, just want to say thank you. We're talking about equipping the church, and I'm just so thankful this is a church that obviously is being equipped. Otherwise, I would not see the help that I see as I look around this room and as I've experienced the, the previous services. I know your reputation. I know who you are. I'm just thankful you are equipping the saints. We're going to look at God's Word in order to focus our minds on that task this morning. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Your pastor preached last Lord's Day from 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to jump into chapter 2 in the first 15 verses, and I invite you to look in the Scripture to this text. Paul writes to Timothy, by the Holy Spirit, he writes to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the ages, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There's a sense in which we understand that the Holy Spirit here has seen to it that we're reading somebody else's mail. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Let's just ponder that for a moment. Let's just, let's just think about the entire span of human history, and let's just imagine for a moment that we could choose one particular set of correspondence 
between two particular men in all of human history, what, what correspondence would you want to see? Well, I have to tell you, I cannot imagine correspondence more important not only to the church, but to me individually than a correspondence between the Apostle Paul and Timothy. We know that Paul found Timothy as he was raised by a godly mother and godly grandmother. The circumstances of Timothy's life are, are unusual. Uh, his father was, was Roman. Timothy had been raised, nurtured, brought up in the Scriptures. Timothy's incredibly young. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, young, as, a, as in young man, could span a period of time between about the ages of 15 and uh, probably 25. But you wouldn't speak this way about a young man who is married and has a family. That would be unusual in this Greco-Roman context. So in all likelihood, Paul is writing to a young man, again, think, in his, in his late teens, perhaps through his, his, his mid-20s, He's not yet married, but he is called to be a preacher of the Word. Now, it's very interesting. In 1 Timothy, one of the things he says is, you need to get married. The pastor should be the, the husband of one wife. There's, the, there, there's that encouragement. He's, and, and have you noticed that as you're reading First and Second Timothy, it is like I, my grandfather and grandmother, and I, I had two of them, but two in particular, my mother's parents, they talked like this all the time. They were titanic southern types, both born in the 19th century. My grandfather was one of 13. My grandmother was one of 12. When I was 16, at a family funeral, my mother turned to me and simply had an observation. She said, Al, I just want you to understand, you cannot marry any girl from this county. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> it's simply lost track. The risk is too high. Uh, if she can't remember them all, then I sure can't. My grandmother was one of those uh, one of those southern ladies of. Uh, well, William Faulkner would say she was of magnitude. Some of you know exactly what I mean. She was a big lady, always wore a cotton dress, wore a cotton dress. She never went out of the house without a dress, never went out of the house without a patent leather purse the size of a Sherman tank, never went out with that handkerchief in her hand, and she talked just like this. And my grandfather, he didn't talk as much, but when he talked, he talked just like this. It was grand things of life. Here's what you should aspire to. Here's how you, how you live as a godly man. Here's what you do. Tie your shoes. <laughs> my grandmother was just that way. She talked about the loftiest thing, and, 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 and then she would say, you know, do this or do that. It was just, it was, and Timothy evidently needs the same thing from the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul, even in the passage we just read, will deal with the loftiest issues of life and, and truth and theology and doctrine and calling, and then he'll say, uh, avoid quarrelsome people. Tie your shoes. Just, just Here's just a little advice. You just need to know this. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is for the church, not just for Timothy. We get to read this. And as the text begins, and we're thinking about the equipping of the church, recognize that what Paul's talking to Timothy about here is that the church is equipped by the Word. The church is equipped by the Word through anointed 
God called preachers and teachers. Now, one of the amazing things we have to see as we begin here is that even as Timothy's been told, let no man despise your youth, he's very young, but as we know, Paul's going to send him to Ephesus as the, as the teaching elder. So, I mean, he's about to become senior pastor here very quickly, but he, he still refers to him, and this is, this is love. Remember, the apostle Paul had no children, and this is the way it is, by the way, in ministry. It's the, it's the way it is in ministry. Uh, thankfully, we understand that biblically the pastor is to be married and hopefully will have a family and will have children. But in ministry, pastors have many children. It's part of the glory of the church. Paul refers to him as son, that you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. That is the essence of how the church is equipped in ministry. It is a succession of faithful biblical teachers. It is a succession of faithful biblical teaching. When I was 20 years old, I first heard the Apostles' Creed. I, I, I heard it before, but I didn't know what it was. But uh, at age 20, I had a professor assign the class to memorize the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and now sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the holy universal church. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. You can say it in about 30 seconds. I can remember memorizing, and then I can remember the professor, after you had to stand before him and recite it. And if you were off a syllable, not acceptable. And I can still remember being called up Looking at the professor, he said, recite the Apostles' Creed, or recited the Apostles' Creed. I'll never forget what he said. He said, you have now put in your heart the summary of the Christian faith that the apostles taught the early church based upon Scripture. Now, the Apostles' Creed doesn't have the status of Scripture. Scripture is Scripture. It's the inerrant, infallible, verbally inspired Word of God. It is the Scripture that is sharper than any two-edged sword that ever liveth. But we need to retain a pattern of sound words, Paul says to Timothy, from the Scriptures. We need to be able to summarize the Christian faith. We need to be able to articulate doctrine. We need to be able to tell Christians, young in age and young in the faith, what the Christian faith is. And from time to time, we need to confess it together, just so we remember, this is how we say this. The things that you have received from faithful men teach faithfully to others so that there will be this succession of faithfulness in the church. Let me tell you, until I die, one of the great goals of my life is never to say anything that the Apostle Paul would disagree with. One of the great purposes and convicting issues of my life is that I would never want Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Moses or Abraham to hear me preach and say, what are you saying there? In the age of the church, I want James and John, Matthew and Mark, Peter and Philip, 
And that great host of witnesses, when they hear me preach, I want them to say he's saying exactly what we said. Because it's not just who they are. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. When we're reading the New Testament, when we're reading the Scriptures, we're reading the God-inspired testimony of prophets and preachers and apostles. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, that's what the local church should be. The local church should be an apostolic outpost where people hear the right things and believe the right things and then keep saying the right things, passing it down, teaching them in order that generation by generation, individual by individual, family by family, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that God has revealed in His Word gets drilled into hearts. We had the joy of catechizing our children in a historic Baptist catechism. And uh, we had two, have two, daughter Katie and a son Christopher. And uh, one of the things we would do is just reinforce their learning when they were very young. Well, we were in the car, and we'd be on a long trip, and uh, we'd be in the car a long time. They'd be, they're trapped. I mean, they got nowhere to go. They're literally tied in the car. You know, they're, <laughs> they're strapped down. And, uh, and, and we, would, we would just teach them. The, uh, these things. And then, you know, the wonderful thing about a catechism is you ask a question, they learn how to answer it. You know, what is the chief end of man? You know, uh, 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 who is God? These wonderful things. And uh, the question is, what is sin? And uh, as I was president of the seminary, when we went there, Katie was four. And, uh, you know, part, we took him with, I just, where I was going preaching, we just, we just all went together. And so it was, uh, I was a young seminary president. We had a four-year-old and a one-year-old. No one's asking the one-year-old many questions, but in a church like this, you know, Katie at, at age four or five, she'd be in Sunday school and she's just visiting and sweet little girl. They didn't know who she was. She was just any girl. And so there was a Sunday school class. I found out about this because a Sunday school teacher came in to find me because he had never experienced anything like this before. So Katie's four years old. They're having a discussion and the teacher says, what is sin? Okay, what is sin? So... Some children said, you know, when you disobey your parents, you do something wrong or whatever. Katie is sitting there, and the teacher says, sweetheart, what would you say sin is? She said, any thought, word, or deed which by omission or commission robs God of his glory, violates God's law, causes the Holy Spirit to grieve, and wounds the witness of Christ's people. (laughs) Four, you know, and... uh, so the teacher is in absolute shock and turns to Katie and says, sweetheart, do you have any idea what that means? She looked back and said, no, sir. <laughs> and that is, that, is, that is a part of the glory of when you're just drilling this into their hearts so that it's there, you know, when they, when, when, and, and, then, and when it's needed. Katie and her husband Riley have, uh, have three children now. They're six, three, two little boys, six and three. And the little girl had just turned one. And they're doing the very same thing. And uh, it, they're, they're just surrounded by biblical truth, these, these precious little children. And just this week, uh, an issue came up about God's love. And the three-year-old and the six-year-old are strapped down in car seats in the back. They're in the car, so, you know, mom and dad can hear this. And uh, so the three-year-old says, who does God love? That was a question. Who does God love? And uh, 
it had been Mother's Day, and he was just thinking big thoughts about mothers and all kinds of things, and he says, who, who, who does God love? And uh, Benjamin just responded, right, he said, God loves all people. In creation, he loves all people in the covenant of creation, and he loves those who believe in Jesus who, by the covenant of grace, come to know him. And the little one, the three-year-old said, and Christians get to go to heaven. Benjamin says, those who God loves in Christ, they all go to heaven. And he stops and goes, because they're studying Exodus right now in kindergarten. He just turns and says, except the Egyptians. No Egyptians in heaven. <laughs> except, except, except the Egyptians. <laughs> this is his own version of the catechism. But you look at that and you say, you know, that, that's actually what the church should be. This is, this is what, the, I just told those, I obviously love my family, but I, I share that in order to tell you, it's not going to come out unless it gets put in. And it's not going to get put in in 10 minutes. It's not going to get put in just in vacation Bible school. It's not just going to get put in, you know, in some kind of short course. It gets put in because godly mothers and fathers pass on that which they have received from faithful men in order that their children will be faithful also. It's because churches, that's why you have a, an ordered ministry. I think you call them equip groups. And I got to tell you, I, I am the product. Whatever I am, by God's grace, I'm the product of Christian parents who loved me, drilled the Word of God into me. My dad was in the grocery business. <laughs> My mom was a stay-at-home mom. And they, I was, I mean, there's this not a question. We were at everything in the church. I, I added up. I don't know. It was like 15 hours a week at church. I was in everything. I was a royal ambassador. I was in every choir. My dad directed the training union. We were in Sunday school, church twice, prayer meeting on Wednesday night, youth things after that, and then lots of extra stuff in there. I look at that and I go, I was just encompassed by faithful teaching. And, and, and by the way, let me give you a great principle of Christian leadership and, and of how to think about the equipping ministry of the church. We had a custodian at our church. He ran the elevator. It was, it was, a, it was a church that had a multi-level education building, kind of, kind of new back then. And uh, I, I don't know, I was about 12 years old, got on the elevator, a few of my 12-year-old friends. And, you know, we know how to run an elevator. I turned to Mr. Costa and I said, why, why do you run the elevator? And he looked at me and said, so you don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I... Got it. Check. And uh, you, you look at that and you say, okay, so, so, so here's the thing. You, you, we have to organize the ministry of the church. That's what we're called to do in such a way that we got every base covered. Uh, you know, and we're doing everything in order to, even right down to who's going to push the buttons in the elevator so the sixth graders just don't keep it running up and down. You organize the church so that you say, here's what we're about. We are about making Christian disciples faithful to Christ. We're going to get everybody in the right room. We're going to do everything the right way. And, and parents, you're going, to bring, you're going to bring your families, and, and all, all God's people are going to come together in worship, whereby the central act of Christian worship, which is the preaching of God's Word, believers are conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one way given in Scripture whereby we are conformed to the image of Christ, and it is by the ministry of the Word of God. Which takes us to the next section of this passage. In verse 3, Paul says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the, last, the first share of the crops. 
Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You know, one of, the, one of the most important issues we need to recognize is that in the rightly ordered ministry of a gospel church, according to the New Testament, the teaching of the Word of God is the paramount issue. The teaching of the Word of God is what energizes Christ's people for missions and ministry in every dimension. It's the preaching of the Word of God that conforms us to God's Word. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the singularity that is necessary, and, and it is actually the essence of ministry. That, 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 that's what it is. Early in my life, I was confronted with uh, li- living around a lot of Catholic folks, and uh, including some very uh, ardent Catholic traditionalists. You know, we shared a lot in common. They believe the Apostles' Creed, we believe the Apostles' Creed. But when it comes to defining the gospel, very different. Indeed, contradictory. When it, w- when it comes to defining the ministry, they had priests. They had priests. And, and what do priests do? They priest. And the Roman Catholic theology is such that you know where the church is because the, the priest is there. It's a sacerdotal, sacramental ministry, and, and, and they, are, they are given priestly authority, and, and, and that includes the authority to forgive sins, and they are actually in, a, in, in, in the Mass, rightly understood, the Mass is a, a reenactment of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, 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 and they, they have the stewardship of what they claim by transubstantiation is to be the body and the blood of Christ, and they got lots of stuff to do. They got Priests have got to do all kinds of things. If you have a sacramental ministry, then you got to be there because you got a priest. You got to be priesting everywhere. When someone dies or is about to die, you got to be there with the last rites or extreme unction. You're just all the time, all the time having to priest. I just want you to know none of that is the responsibility of the pastors of Taylor's First Baptist Church. It is because, as the book of Hebrews tells us, we have a great high priest. Jesus Christ, he priests for us. And, and not only that, the, the, the crucifixion, and Luther leaned into this so much in the Reformation. It's once for all, it's done. We're not doing it again. Christ is not re-crucified. Priests have got all kinds of things to do. And, and the church is defined by the fact that they're there. And, 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 and so you say, well, how do we define the church? We define the church by the fact that the Scripture is here. Martin Luther said that in the Great Reformation. He said, where is the church? He said, the first mark of the church is the presence of the Word of God, the ministry of the Word, where the Word of God is rightly preached. That's why there's a pulpit at the center of this room. It it all comes down to the preaching of the Word. Now, there are other things the church does, but we only do it if the Word of God is rightly preached, and the church is defined by the preaching of the Word of God, and that's what what the Apostle Paul's talking about here. That's how the saints are equipped, is by the preaching of the Word of God, and the Word of God is taught in other contexts, taught, again, by parents, taught in small groups, taught in equipping ministries. The most important thing is, is that it be taught. It has to start here, and then Paul uses these three metaphors about the, the, the minister who's been called to preach the Word. And what's so bizarre is that all three of these would have been shocking to Timothy, all three of them. Now, maybe he's a little less shocked because he knows the Apostle Paul, but Christians in the first century would have been shocked by the metaphors the Apostle Paul uses. The first one is that of a soldier. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. 
Now remember, when we're talking about a soldier here, and we're talking about an army here, we're talking about the imperial military forces of Rome. We're talking about Caesar's legions and Caesar's soldiers. And we're talking about Rome even now bringing pressure against and threats against Christians. It is the Apostle Paul who is writing this right now from a Roman prison being guarded by the Roman military. Can you understand how shocking it is? He says, oh, you need to be like one of these guys. And here's what he says. Here's what you learn about a soldier. He, he has one main purpose. That's to please the one who commands him. To please the one who enlisted him. And he doesn't get entangled in other things and even shares in suffering precisely because there's one thing that pleases the commanding officer of the Christian church, and that is the preaching of the Word of God. And so the church has to make certain in its equipping ministry that it all comes down to this. Just like a soldier salutes, says yes, sir, and obeys, the church sees to the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God, even when it must suffer for it. It doesn't get entangled in other things. Second metaphor is an athlete. And again, you look at that and say, well, you know, athletics are so much a part of life that it's not an accident that so many of our metaphors are, are athletic. Yeah, that, that's true. That's true. But that is not Jewish. It's just not Jewish. Now, of course, Paul's writing to Timothy. And, and Timothy has a Jewish mother and a Jewish grandmother. His father was a Gentile. Timothy himself is a representation of how the church is changing, even as you have Jews and Gentiles together. But the point is that the, the Olympic Games, and that's the main athletic issue in the background here, it was considered kind of hedonistic, arrogant, prideful. And besides that, weird things went on like the events being naked. The Jewish people were really down based upon the Old Testament, upon nakedness. One of the first things God did after Adam and Eve sinned is he made for them aprons to cover themselves. And the Apostle Paul says, oh, I, I know you think about the Olympics, so let's talk about it. What makes an athlete successful, faithful? What does faithfulness look like? It's one who competes according to the rules. Certain rules in the Christian faith. They're the commands of Christ. The dictates of God's Word. There are principles and doctrines laid down in Scripture, and there is no shortcut. There's no just add water and stir Christian discipleship. It doesn't happen. You can, you can arrange for a spiritual experience. You cannot arrange for any kind of long-term faithfulness with a short-term program. It's a long race. It has to be run with faithfulness according to the rules. I am from Louisville, Kentucky. Last weekend, we had a little horse race people care about. The entire city is consumed with it for a period of months. Now, you may know that the horse that won the Kentucky Derby this time is, is quite a story. A horse that was bought for $30,000, which is nothing in thoroughbred terms, and who had the longest odds and nonetheless came and won the Derby. That's the big story. But until that happened, the big story was the disqualification of last year's winner of the Kentucky Derby. That's just massive. That's like 
felony in horse racing. And, and, and so whenever the 2021 Kentucky Derby is going to be mentioned, it's going to be mentioned as the race in which the winner was disqualified to the absolute shame of everyone who had been involved in it. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, do not be that horse. Compete according to the rules. And he means here the, the commands of God, yes, but the principles of Christian discipleship. And then next, the next metaphor is the most shocking of all coming from the Apostle Paul. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And you say, what's so shocking about farming? What's so controversial about farming? Nothing in this case is controversial about farming. Many of the parables Jesus told, indeed, if you take the contextual parables, Jesus told more parables that had to do with farming than anything else. But let me just tell you, in the New Testament, the one man you know was never a farmer is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is from a city. He was raised in Tarsus. He, uh, he, he, he's more cosmopolitan. Uh, he, he is trained in the, you know, he, he was trained by the leading rabbis of, uh, of the age. He, uh, he, by the way, was basically called to cities. One of the most amazing things is that early Christianity, apostolic Christianity, even the, so many of the books in the New Testament are named for cities in, in the Roman Empire because the Apostle Paul had the missiological ability God had prepared him to be able to go into cities and plant churches. But Paul says to Timothy, who is also from a city, says, Timothy, think about the farmer. Hard work, it's long work. And it should be the hardworking farmer who's the first to get a share of the crops. You know, pastors need to hear this. Churches need to hear this. We just need to understand that it's, it's the long faithfulness of a Christian church that adds up to the most magnificent glory of Christ seen in generation after generation of faithful Christians. Let me put it this way. Here's a test. How many gathered in this room are faithful Christians? I'm not asking you. I'm going to assume that your presence here is a pretty good indication that you mean to be a faithful Christian. Let me ask you, how many faithful Christians did it take behind you for you to be a faithful Christian today, even for you to just track. How, how is it that you're sitting in this church sanctuary at this time? What explains that? Let me ask you something else. Will your children and your children's children be faithful? That was the obsessive concern of Israel. Read a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 6, a passage like, Jer like uh, Joshua 4. The obsessive concern of Israel was that the living generation's children's, 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 children would be faithful. And the Christian church must do the same. It's a long process, but you know what? The church that stays at this long faithfulness equipping the saints is the first to see the results. How many men from this church have gone out into Christian ministry? Lots. How many people touched by the ministry of this church have given their lives to Christian ministry? Think about that. That doesn't happen by accident. And not only that, in the context of faithfulness, how many young men and young women grown up in this church have gotten married to one another or, or to someone else of, who, who comes from a strong Christian background and, and they've raised their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? And, and, and now they, they, they have their children's children being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is where you as a church should find such great pleasure. And Taylor's First Baptist Church, you're old enough to see that generation from generation going back to a graveyard. 
your determination should be that so long as the Lord tarries from generation to generation, it's just going to get stronger. Look at the text. As we conclude, the Apostle Paul points Timothy, however, to the most important model of his thinking and of of his heart, that's Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, and it's just a very short confessional statement. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as priest in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. This is a run-on sentence, and, and Paul writes run-on sentences. English teacher wouldn't like it. It makes perfect sense in the Greek. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ is not a name. Jesus Christ is a truth claim. Jesus, Messiah, and immediately thereafter, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Again, his messianic identity as preached in my gospel. And the, Paul, the apostle Paul says, so where has my gospel gotten me? Where has preaching the gospel gotten me? I am chained to a soldier imprisoned. Of course, you know how you'll end, 2 Timothy. All the stuff will come back. What about, this? what about the race? I have run the good race. I have finished the fight. But, but, but where's this gotten Paul now? I mean, it, it takes New Testament gospel-mindedness to understand that the Apostle Paul being chained to a Roman soldier in a Roman jail is what faithfulness looks like at this moment. How is that is because he says, I'm bound, but you know what? The Word of God is not bound. Every church I planted, Word of God's still being preached. All the young men I've mentored, they're still preaching. And Timothy, by the way, I'm writing to you right now. So how is the Word of God not bound? Number one, as we know, the Apostle Paul's actually teaching and preaching the Word of God to the very person he's chained to and to the other prisoners. But what he means more than anything is you can't stop the Word of God. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. As Jeremiah heard the Lord say through him, is not my word like fire, like a hammer that shatters a rock? You know, churches are teaching all kinds of things in some congregations. I look at the literature, I look at the programs they're teaching, and you know what? It's stupid stuff. I hadn't said that quite that way before. Some of it's not heretical. It doesn't have enough doctrine in it to get close to being heretical. It's just a waste of time. This church, and you as Christian families, all those, you have a limited amount of time to get as much Bible and as much doctrine and as much Christianity in the hearts of Christ people because the world's coming for them. The confessional statement continues as the Apostle Paul says, just, just remember this, we're, 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 we're seeking to obtain the salvation, to be faithful in order to obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He goes on to say, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithfulness, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. There's the great promise, by the way. And, and, and so you say, well, we're, we're frail, fragile human beings. We will mess this up. Yes, but you know what? Christ is faithful. And in a rightly ordered church, he will fix it. He will not deny himself. And then look at the next two verses where we conclude. Remind them of these things. And, and remember, such a big thing. As you see up in, in, in verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. Now he says, remind them of these things and charge them before God. Remember, this is a young man. This is a young man he's told. He's supposed to go to a church and he's going to deliver the charge. That's his job. 
charged them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. The Apostle Paul here is not saying take words with a lack of seriousness. It's the same Paul that said to Timothy, maintain the pattern of sound words. But he's talking about particular little controversies. Don't get into that. Keep your eye on teaching God's Word. And then verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of truth. That's it. That, that, that's what we're about. The, the, the right handling of the Word of God, the, the right teaching of the Word of God, rightly dividing, that is to say, that it just teaching it, preaching it. Do everything, the Apostle Paul says. It's very interesting. Do your best to present yourself to God. We're going to face judgment. And that doesn't mean just the preacher. It doesn't mean just the, the official teaching elders of this church. It doesn't just mean the staff of this church. It doesn't just mean the Sunday school teachers of this church, the equipped leaders of this church. You and I, every single one of us, will give an answer to God for how we have maintained the stewardship given to us. The Apostle Paul gives us the goal. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Every single one of us understands what that means. A worker with no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Brothers and sisters, I'm just so thankful to be here at Taylor's First Baptist Church. This is, this is who you are. This is what you do. I did not come here to correct you. I did not come here to rebuke you from the Word of God. I didn't come here to introduce you to something you don't know. I, I'm just here to say, remember who you are as those taught by faithful preachers. Remember, remember what you have been taught. Turn again to the Word of God. Own it in your life, in your heart. In this generation, for this church, in order that when all of us individually as Christians, and when you as a congregation, including all the people out there in the churchyard and all who've ever been a part of this church, when the redeemed from this church are before the Lord, let there be no shame. So you got a lot to do. I know you're already at it. Consider this a charge to keep at it, faithfully, rightly, joyously, till Jesus comes. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in your word. Father, we thank you for the gift of the ministry. We thank you for the gift of, of teachers. We thank you for the, the gift of all of us needing teachers and having been taught. Father, we thank you that the ministry of your word is what you've given your church. May we love your word. Have a hunger for your word. Grow in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.